You guys know this is Exodus. As I said, the only Christian group known to mankind that does not use the Passion week after week as an example of everything in the Bible. So we are here. We are guilt-free. We're tear-free. We're going to be talking about heaven tonight, okay? Heaven part three. Now, here is the preface to our talk tonight, the legal disclaimer. The things we're going to talk about tonight when we talk about heaven are what we consider the healthy speculation portion of our discussions about heaven. For those of you who are going to catch up with us on, you know, series one and two or chapters one and two on the CD, you guys know that we've basically stayed in the text for much of the time. But tonight we're going to be asking some questions that some people want to know the answers to, and other people could genuinely say, I don't care what the answer is, because we're talking about the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. We're not talking about our final destination being eternal heaven and eternal hell. So just keep in mind tonight, as a disclaimer, that we're going to be surmising some things, taking clues from the text. But if you totally disagree with what I say tonight, that's okay, because some people do disagree, by the way, and I'm going to tell you where theologians disagree about certain things. And I'm also going to tell you the real bottom line is we're only studying this because some people have asked about these questions. We're going to move on to questions that you'll really care about, about the eternal heaven, because that's probably where it's going to matter the most. Okay. Just to remind you of where we are, we made the case for why there's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell that's at some point in the future. We discussed the two types of judgments that Christians and non-Christians will face, the judgment of faith and the judgment of works. We walked through a lot of passages, and I think it was kind of, it opened some eyes, I could tell, by the way that we had some reactions to the judgment of works. A lot of Christians don't understand the judgment of works. And it led us to understand that Jesus does, in fact, reward us in heaven for our works, something that most Christians don't really pay much attention to. So today we're backed up. Let's go to the next slide. We're backed up in our timeline, so you can kind of visualize where we are. You see off to the right, eternal heaven and eternal hell, the ultimate destinations for people. The judgment of works is what's going to send unbelievers to hell because, of course, if they don't have faith, they're just going to be judged on their works. We talked about that. And everyone guaranteed who is just tried on their works and doesn't have the saving grace of Jesus will fail and be sent into the eternal hell. The judgment of works for Christians, as we just said a minute ago, is what gives us our rewards. We've already passed the judgment of faith. We are going to heaven. Our name is in the book of life. It's guaranteed that we're going to heaven. The judgment of works for Christians is just to find out what level of rewards we're going to be getting in heaven. Okay? And remember, you can't fail the judgment of works. In fact, you can't lose your salvation based on the good things that you've done. You can just earn rewards. That's in last week, so pick that up if you need to review that. So you'll see the circle is focusing on where we are this week. We're talking about the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. Just to review one more thing, why do we even believe that there's an intermediate place? Why do theologians believe that there must be something between death and our eternal destination being heaven? And that is because we, as we look at the text, it's pretty obvious those things have not happened yet. The eternal heaven is God remaking earth and dwelling with man on earth. Well, that's in the future. And we know that the eternal hell is all of the intermediate hell and the devil and all his followers being thrown into the lake of fire along with all the people who failed the judgment of works. And we know that's in the future. So the real question we're back to tonight is, the minute we die, where do we go? And that's what we're focusing on tonight. Where do we go after we die in that intermediate period? Okay. Let's go to the next slide. 
First of all, I want to start with a little vision of heaven that we kind of need to know because we know the ultimate eternal heaven is on earth. And in the next few weeks, we're going to actually be starting to talk about what will life on new earth be like. But since we're not on the new earth, and by definition, that means we're in the intermediate states as we're studying, where is the intermediate state? Where is the intermediate heaven is really what we're asking. Okay, so question number one that a lot of people ask is, where is it? And the answer is probably in a dimension where God lives, in a spiritual dimension that we can't see, but is very real around us. How do we know that? We'll take a look at, for example, Acts 7, 54 and 56. This is a passage that's often cited when someone gets to glimpse heaven. This is the story of Stephen. If you remember, he's the one who's being stoned for his faith. You remember that at the stoning of Stephen, there's a guy named Saul there who's going to become Paul the Apostle, who's going to write most of the New Testament. And in fact, he's going to write most of what we know about heaven. And in fact, Paul gets to glimpse heaven. So he is watching, and at this point, he's probably closing his ears because Stephen is about to commit blasphemy under at least Jewish law because he's claiming that Jesus is the equal of God and they're ready to stone him. And here's what Acts says. When they heard this, meaning the testimony of Stephen, saying that Jesus was the Son of God and was the equal of God, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, as soon as he said that, they were sure to stone him. Because what Stephen was saying is, I have just looked into heaven and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, we are so used to hearing words like standing at the right hand of God, we probably miss the impact. Basically, he was equating Jesus with God. Remember, Jesus at his trial was convicted and given the death penalty for saying the same words when he said, they said to him, are you the son of God? And he said, I am, and you will see me at the right hand of my father. And they're like, I can't hear it. It's enough. I can't hear anymore. And the chief priest rips his robe because Jesus was equating himself with God. And here's Stephen about to be stoned, and he says the same words. Now, is he just having a dream? Is he hallucinating before they kill him? Most people who look at this text in context say, absolutely not. Stephen is given a chance to glimpse into the actual heaven that's somewhere in the realm around us that we can't see. But his eyes are open so he can see into where heaven is. Now, what does he see? He sees God and he sees Jesus. Okay, those are the only clues we have of what he sees, but we know that he could see something that everyone else around him can't see. You would probably think that if the other people saw it around him, they'd probably stop, put the stones down for a second, at least ask him, what was that? Okay, but apparently... He's the only one that sees it. Here's another text in the Old Testament, by the way, just for you to compare that this is not just a New Testament philosophy or, or phenomenon. 2 Kings 6.17, you guys know the story of Elisha, okay? And he has a servant, and the servant says, would you let me glimpse heaven? This is a request, and Elisha says, sure, why not? Here's what it says. Elisha prays and says, O Lord, open his eyes, so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw hills full of chariots of fire around Elisha. 
and a servant can suddenly see the realm around him. Okay? So this is just by way of example. There's a lot of other verses in the Bible that we could look to, but this is just by way of example. So when people ask, where is this intermediate heaven that I may be going to or this intermediate hell? It's basically somewhere dimensionally around us. Okay? Now, if you think Christians are crazy believing in other dimensions, read the works of Stephen Hawking, secular scientist. Read works of most people who've looked at Einstein's theories about relativity and have interpreted it and come up with better answers, and they will tell you that most scientists today believe there's probably about eight or nine different dimensions beyond the three that we know of. People differ as there's seven, as there's 12, but there's numerous dimensions that we can't perceive that are around us, including time being a dimension. So, kind of interesting that the Bible gives us a clue about dimensions long before they're ever discovered, that there is a spiritual dimension where angelic beings and God and Christ and maybe others reside, and it's right around us. All right, next question about intermediate heaven while we're going through them. Some people want to know, are we conscious after death? How many people have heard of near-death experiences? The church has taken a reversal on this role. It used to be that the church would try to debunk some of these experiences. They would say, like, these are kind of hallucinations or they're chemically induced things, and nobody really knew what to make of them. But if you read modern church literature on near-death experiences, there are a lot of Christian apologists that use near-death experiences to justify that there is, in fact, life after death. Well, as Christians, we kind of take that as, <laughs> as, a, as a given. You know, we, we kind of, I mean, our whole testimony is trying to tell people about Jesus and how to spend the rest of our eternal life with Jesus. But if you don't know what near-death experiences are, they're basically that moment that a lot of people experience right at the moment of death, where they find themselves kind of floating out of their body, looking down maybe at the operating table. They see themselves down there, and they see this big white light, and they're headed towards the light, and they feel like this is where they're supposed to go and the light is nice or warm or friendly or whatever they describe it and then for some reason they go back down into their body and they wake up and they remember this and so many people have reported these and they're all very common Christians these days seem to use them as evidence that there is life after death but for us the question that's a given the bigger question is what are we doing after death we know there's life after death the question is what is it going to be like is it going to be something fun? Or are we going back to that concept where we're going to be singing all day? Okay. Now we're in the intermediate heaven now. We're not talking about our eternal heaven. Okay. So keep that in mind. That's going to be a little bit different. We're still speculating about what life in intermediate heaven is like. And are we conscious? Here's what Paul says in Philippians. If I am to go, and this is Philippians 1, 22 and 23. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is torn because he knows that the moment after death, where is he going to be? With Jesus. Now remember, Paul has a special testimony to us. Not only is he inspired to write these words Paul is the guy that got to glimpse heaven as well, okay? So we have John's revelation, but we also have Paul knowing that he got to glimpse into heaven, so he knows kind of what's behind that curtain. And he constantly refers to die is gain. Why? Because he's going to be with Jesus, okay? Here's another verse, 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And I think that just kind of gives us a clue. Again, these are clues 
that the moment after death, we're going to be in a conscious state with Jesus. Okay. Now, where is Jesus? We just talked about a couple of verses where people got to see where Jesus is at. Where is he at? Right, he's at the right hand of God. He's in heaven. He's in that place that Stephen glimpsed. He's in that intermediate state of heaven that's around us. All right, so we know it's there. We know that some people are already there, Jesus being one of them. We're going to talk a little bit later on about some other people we know are there. Okay, And we know that Paul thinks the minute he dies, he's going to be there with Christ in heaven. So I think that a, a healthy inference for us to draw is that we're going to do the same thing. The moment we die, we're there. Now, last week we talked about the judgment of faith is the thing that determines, do you believe in Jesus or do you not? And that's going to be your sole determinant of do you go to heaven or do you not? Okay. And the question that was asked last week was, well, when is the judgment of faith? And I will tell you right now, as I told you in the beginning, I'm going to caution you, theologians differ about when it's going to be. But most seem to agree that it happens after death, and it's what determines whether we go to the intermediate heaven or the intermediate hell. But if you think about it, if there is an intermediate state, the reason most theologians think that the judgment of faith happens right, at, right after death is because we go one place or the other, and they know that. The question is, how do we get there? And the only two possible answers are either you're judged right then, or you have to believe that God, because he knows the outcome of the later judgment, sends you there early. Okay? Most people have sided with probably the judgment of faith happens right then. Here's some things. It just, just some quotes from different people who've read this. When we die, we face the judgment of faith. The outcome of this judgment determines whether we go to the intermediate heaven or the intermediate hell. For the purposes of full disclosure, here's where the difference is. Theologians differ about when the judgment of works for believers will take place. Okay, so now we're talking about the judgment of works. Some believe it will take place immediately, along with the judgment of faith, same time, so you kind of know in advance what your rewards might be. Some believe that it happens in your intermediate heaven at some point, while you're hanging out up there, since you have nothing else better to do, you might as well be passing out rewards and opening Christmas presents. And some believe that it actually happens when all of the people receive the works, the great white throne judgment, when the believers and unbelievers are judged according to works, of course, knowing that the unbelievers aren't going to have a good time with what they get and that the believers will get their rewards. Okay? I, don't, I don't know which one to tell you is a better answer. I think my own belief reading textually in the, in the scriptures, it seems like the judgment of works happens a little later, probably closer to the great white throne judgment because it just that's when it's talked about in the text. So that seems to be the one I would pick. But again, we're just surmising things. We're taking clues because in the end, this intermediate stage is going to end. We're just kind of throwing out some things because people want to know. So you'll be conscious. You'll be hanging out with Jesus. You'll probably go there because of a judgment of your faith. God knows our hearts and he knows where we're going. One way or another, whether he's sending us there earlier, he actually is conducting the judgment of faith because our name is in the book of life. We get to walk right in. We're going. Go to the next slide. The clues that we're going to be with Jesus in the next life, again, he tells the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. So one more clue we have from the text that it's not a matter of time passing, we're not disembodied spirits, we're not in the ground, we're not floating around, we're not here to haunt our relatives or spy on them, okay? We're in paradise with Jesus. 
And of course, tonight we're going to study the parable that we started reading a few weeks ago that confused us. Tonight it'll make a little more sense, hopefully, now that we've walked through where the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell is. Anyone want to open up Luke 16, 19 to 31? So here's the basic players in our story. Jesus is telling a parable about the kingdom, and he discusses that there's a guy named Lazarus, right? Poor beggar hanging outside. There's a rich man, right? And they both die, okay? Rich man goes one place, Lazarus seems to go another. Where's Lazarus seem to go? He goes to where, he goes basically to his father Abraham, okay? Now, we probably assume that Abraham's on the good side, okay? He's probably in heaven, maybe, all right? And where's, where does, where's the rich man get to go? It says in hell. The rich man is in hell, okay? Now, I didn't come up with this parable. This is Jesus telling us a parable. You guys know I've talked about this before. This is the only parable of Jesus where he ever refers to the person by name. So just a curious note, because some theologians actually think that maybe he was thinking about a real example in real life. But right after death, Jesus depicts in his parable the two characters being in separate places. Now, we know Jesus, regardless of what else he's using this parable to tell, is not going to make up a false scenario trick us in any way. He's telling us the kingdom of God is like this. Right after death, boom, you go two different places. All right? And the reason we keep calling this the intermediate heaven, hey, it could last after everybody leaves it, but what we're saying is it's not our final destination. The final destination is here on earth, and we know these people, when they die, they go to heaven, okay? And if you're struggling with, does that heaven end? I don't know. I mean, first of all, God created heaven. He could end it. Now, he may want it to keep going. He may want to, like, rent it out to somebody, okay? He's not ready to sell it, okay? But it's intermediate, not because it's temporal or not because it has to end. God can create it. He can end it. He can start it. But just because our existence there, our time there is intermediate. It's not our final destination. And again, I'm not saying that in this parable, Jesus reveals the intermediate heaven and says, here it is. What I'm saying is, Jesus tells us what it's going to be like immediately after death for two people in a parable. Jesus doesn't make up stuff. He doesn't lie. So you have to take the clues from what's happening. We see that immediately after death, they're separated into two places. Stop there. That supports all of what theologians find in all the other passages about people being separated into an, into an intermediate heaven and an intermediate hell. How do we know what's happening? Look at the rest of the passage, for example. Okay? Now you have one person who's in agony, the other person who seems to be in the bosom of Abraham. Okay, what does that represent? Like comforting? He's with somebody, all right? We're going to tell, you know, we'll pull out some things, but these are just clues. Just use your imagination for a second, okay? If you guys are looking for a passage that says, thus saith the Lord, the intermediate heaven begins immediately upon death, we're not going to find it, okay? But there's a lot of things that we as a church believe that are not stated that expressly either, okay? This parable depicts a character who's saying, he's kind of trying to do like an Ebenezer Scrooge. Like, if I could only go back in time, I'll fix my life. Everything will be so much better, you know? And in this passage, the part where it says there's a chasm between heaven and earth and you can't cross over, I don't know if there's really a chasm. I don't know if they could really see each other. Remember, it is a parable. But I think the, the, the truth of the parable is you can't go one way or the other. It's too late. And then when the man realizes it's too late, he thinks of his brothers. At least let me go back to my father's house and warn them. And Jesus, of course, gives that very biting criticism. If they don't listen to the prophets and to Moses, 
And really what he's probably saying is pointing at himself, they're not even going to listen to me. Even if a man should rise from the dead, they won't listen. And of course, he's foreshadowing the fact that he will rise from the dead and no one will listen to him across the world. People are still going to be asking questions even though he rose from the dead. All right, let's pick out some clues about what we can understand about what happens immediately after death. Of course, Jesus is trying to tell us some truths. You know, of course, he's trying to end it with that big zinger at the end of if they don't believe a guy who rises from the dead, you know, why would they listen to you? You know, in other words, if they're not going to listen to me, why would they listen to you? Okay. All right. Yeah. So it has multiple purposes. But look at some of the things we can see in here. First of all, we have the fact that like angels have carried Lazarus to paradise. Okay. He's going to be with other people. It seems like he's at least with one other person, something that we can glean. It seems like the rich man's in a place of torment and he appears to be alone. Okay. Again, just observations. I don't know if it means anything. Now, in the parable, at least, it seems like the people in heaven are aware of the people in hell. That could be a device in the parable, or it could actually be true. Okay. Remember, Jesus is not going to make up a parable that tricks us. I don't think he does that. Okay. But at the same time, we have to remember that he is telling a story, so you may have to use story devices. You know, Like when he said there was a certain man with a vineyard, maybe he didn't really actually know the guy with the vineyard. He was just using that as an example. Okay. But in this case, he seems to call the guy by name, almost like he's thinking about somebody. Now, one thing we see for sure in the story is that the individuals appear to maintain their identities. Lazarus certainly knows who he is. The rich man certainly knows who he is. And he has a memory not only of how he treated Lazarus, but who Lazarus was. And he also has a memory that he has five brothers. And he also seems to want to go back and tell them something about what's going on. So it's not like you just suddenly drift into the afterlife, you forget who you are on earth, you forget everything. on. It seems that at least in Jesus's telling of what it's going to be like after death, it seems that we maintain some sort of memory and recollection of what happened to us on earth, and we maintain our identity. Now that would be totally consistent with what Paul tells us expressly in the epistles about how we will be reunited with our resurrected bodies and we will rise again into the eternal heaven, okay? So the fact that we maintain our individual identity is very scriptural. So it's not surprising that in Jesus' telling of this parable, that seems to be there too. Look at this. The individuals in the story seem to have a physical form of some kind. We're going to talk about that in a second because there's a big debate about whether you have a physical form in the intermediate heaven or in the intermediate hell. Okay? It's debated. I'm not going to tell you there's a good answer to it, but notice that at least in the parable, it seems like the rich man is thirsty. And he thinks that Lazarus has a finger, all right? And he thinks that maybe if Lazarus dips it in the water that he might be able to soothe his lips or something, or his tongue. So these are physical characteristics, okay? Now again, Jesus may use them as devices in his parable to illustrate the fact that the one man is in torment, but it could be just as likely that you actually do have some sort of physical form in the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. Just a possibility. I mean, like I said, it could be a device of the parable, right? It could be a device. I'm not saying that just because in the parable he asked to have it, that means that's it, we have physical bodies. Because like I said, people on both sides debate it. The current modern trend among theologians is to actually believe that we probably might have some sort of physical form. Even if you don't even care about the subject of heaven, if you look at this parable, Jesus is saying, once you die, you've sealed your eternal fate. You can't go back and tell your loved ones, okay? You can't change your fate. You can't even ease your suffering. It's done. All right, so let me say it again. It's a parable, it's a story, but I think Jesus' story is carried incredible truth, 
And I don't think Jesus was going to tell a story that had misnomers or deceptions in them. It's possible some of these things are devices, but it's also very probable that he was thinking as he was telling the story about what would it be like if this really happened. And he kind of described a scenario that's in his mind as a story. Okay? Let's go to the next slide. That brings us to the question that maybe you guys have never thought to ask, but some people ask. Is the intermediate heaven a physical place? Okay, we've already established we're going to be there. We're going to be conscious. We're going to be with Jesus. Okay, we can't cross over. We can't come back. The eternal heaven hasn't happened. We're just hanging out, probably in a great, wonderful state. I think just being with Jesus is going to be great. But is it physical? In other words, are we just going to be singing? Are we just going to be praying? Or are we going to be like maybe eating and sleeping and talking? And what are we doing? Okay, some things to consider. We know these are clues. Again, clues. I told you tonight is a lot of clues. I'm not making any bold statements. But we know, for example, from reading Hebrews 12, 22, that the New Jerusalem currently is hanging out in the sky in heaven right now. It hasn't come down yet. We also know in Revelation later that it does come down from heaven. So either they're building it or it's already built, but it's up there. That's physical. We also know that the tree of life exists in heaven today. That's physical. When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me, where? Where did he say? Paradise. He used a very specific word, by the way. This is where you have to believe that scripture really is inspired and that words have meanings. The word paradise is a Persian word that Jesus uses. And the word in the Greek, in the New Testament, that's used to describe paradise is the same word that is used in Genesis to describe Eden. It's a cultivated, kept garden. In Persian, it meant a walled garden, kind of like going to the Huntington Library. Okay? A walled, manicured, cultivated garden. Not like a wild jungle or not even just a beautiful, like, wild place of flowers or something. It's meant kind of man-controlled, walled in. Jesus basically says to the thief, you will be with me in this cultivated place, just like Eden. All these things are pointing to physical characteristics. If you guys really want a mind-bender night, we could talk about how Eden got in, back into heaven. Okay, we know that when man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he could no longer go back in. But, you know, we all know the Garden of Eden was on earth, so why couldn't man go back in? Is it because we haven't found it? No, it's because it went into the heavenly realm, is what theologians believe about the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.24, look at it. It's about how the, the angel was placed outside so that man could no longer go inside. And he's standing at the, at, the, at the gate of Eden so that man can never go back inside. And I have not seen an angel standing guard anywhere on earth. Well, maybe you can't see the angel. That's my point. He's in the other realm. All of this is by way of saying one simple thing. We have examples of other physical things existing in heaven. We know that Jesus is there in his physical form, in his resurrected body. Okay. We know that there is at least the tree of life. We know that Eden's up there. We know that the New Jerusalem is built or being built or whatever they're doing up there. Maybe that's what we do in the intermediate heaven. They're like, hey, here's a hammer. Get to work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's even more physical than any of us want to imagine. You know. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is here's evidence that it might be a physical place. Go to the next slide. Okay. Summed up this way. The question is, with all these physical characteristics existing in heaven... Is it a stretch to imagine that the intermediate heaven will have physical properties for those who are, are there? Okay. 
And taking it a step further, since we're speculating tonight, is it possible that we might have intermediate bodies in the intermediate heaven? Okay, let's look at one, one more clue from Revelation about physical attributes of the intermediate heaven. I'm bombarding you, but I just want to make a case that it's possible. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. This is in the apocalyptic portion of Revelation, so I'm going to stress that, again, like the parable, these could be devices that John is using to explain. But here is what we see in this description. It says in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and this is a verse that's often cited by people who believe that there is physical attributes to the intermediate heaven. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they were had been completed. I underlined some words in this passage. Notice that, first of all, these guys, these souls, and by the way, the word souls, for those who are going to jump on the bandwagon of that must mean there's no physical bodies. The word souls is interpreted here. Well, I'll leave it for the next slide. Voice. They have a voice. They seem to be crying out with a voice. They're aware of time. They ask the Lord, how long, O Lord? How long until we're avenged? Okay. They seem to remember that they're martyrs. They seem to remember and identify with who they are, that they have been murdered, and they're asking for, for someone to avenge their blood. Okay. They have individuality. They each are given a white robe. Now, I don't know what the white robe symbolizes, but suppose for a second, just stretch your mind for a second, that maybe it's because they are clothed with the white robe. I mean, I don't know. Would you give a white robe to a ghost? Like, here you go. Here's a white robe. Now, maybe it has another meaning. I'm going to tell you, it might have another meaning. I'm not trying to interpret Revelation for you. So each was given a white robe, and notice that God tells the souls, wait a little longer. All I'm going to tell you that this passage seems to imply to me, if I was just going to pick out some clues, whoever the souls are, they seem to be aware of themselves. They seem to be aware that time is passing. And they seem to be aware of what's going on on earth. They are aware that the judgment has not happened. And they're asking the Lord, when are you going to do this? Now, of course, we know that will probably mean when Jesus comes back for the second time and all sorts of end time things are instigated. But they're at least asking the question, when? So it seems like in the intermediate heaven, not only all the other things we've said so far, but it's possible that they might have physical forms and God might give them a white robe to make them hang out a little longer, a way of appeasing them. But regardless of whether you think he gives them the white robe for any reason, he is telling them, wait, and you can draw these two conclusions. They're aware of time and they're aware of what's going on on earth, at least to the degree that the judgment has not happened yet. I brought some materials for those people who are troubled by the awareness on earth issue. I have like five or six pages. You can read some verses about heaven and awareness on earth. But basically, most theologians believe that the saints, the people who've gone before us who are in heaven, not the Catholic saints. I'm talking about saints with a little s, like the Protestant saints, the sainthood of all believer saints, that the believers who have gone before us are in heaven and they're praying for us. They're aware that we are here and that we're fighting the fight right now. Kind of a provocative thought, you know, that they're aware of what's going on. 
I'm, I, you know what, yeah, exactly. I think the funny thing is I think most people think that you do nothing but pray in heaven. And the good news for them is, no, no, we're going to do a few other things. So, of course, prayer exists in heaven, and I think they're doing it constantly for us. Just some things to get out of this. So, when I was telling you about the word souls, the word souls used in this passage, by the way, is normally translated is to mean a physical form. I'm not a Greek expert. I'm just getting this out of the text I'm reading. Okay. Here's some other clues about physical bodies. The Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, we'll get to Paul in a second. The Apostle John appears to have had a body when he visited heaven in the Revelation and his vision of heaven. He is said to have grasped, held, eaten, tasted. Okay? And there's nothing in the text during those portions that seem to indicate that he was uh, doing anything but literally experiencing those things. There no, doesn't seem to be any figurative usage of those words. Paul wrestles with the question of whether he had a body when he saw and glimpsed heaven. Paul says, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows. Okay, so again, I'm not telling you you will have a body. I'm just saying even Paul wrestled with it and didn't know when he experienced heaven, whether he experienced it in bodily form or not. But the fact that he just even thinks that it's a possibility is telling that, you know, it seems like everybody and every image we have of heaven, the people seem to be having bodies. Even in heaven, we see the elders bowing down before God. You know, you got to have a body to do things like that. Look at the last thing on the slide, which is the most important thing. Regardless, it really doesn't matter. This is just all fun for us to think about in case you're wondering what happens to me immediately after I die. Am I just going to be hanging out? Am I going to be in the ground waiting? And the answer is, you'll be in heaven with Jesus, probably doing a lot of things, maybe having a physical body, and probably praying for a bunch of people on earth and waiting for the final heaven. Yeah, that's a really good distinction because if we have a physical form in the intermediate heaven, and hear me on this, it's really important, it's a temporary form because you're absolutely right. Our final form is when our soul is joined with our resurrected body that's buried in the earth. If we, go to the, if we go to the intermediate heaven and we have a body, it's not this body that we have on earth. Okay, so if I didn't make that clear, let me make it absolutely clear. If we're in the intermediate heaven, which of course we will be, and if we have a physical form, it will not be our ultimate physical form. It will not be the form you left on earth that got buried into the ground. Because you're right, that is the one that joins at the end. Okay, that's the one when Christ comes back and all the dead rise and everyone is joined. That's the one that enters the final heaven or the final heaven. Okay, that's the body. So that's why at the bottom of the screen or the one before, go back one, will you, Alicia? That's why at the bottom of the screen, it says very clearly, regardless, if we did have a body, this would be temporary. So big if on if we're going to have a body in the intermediate heaven. And even if we do, it's only temporary. So that's why some of you could say, like, this whole talk tonight has been a big so what. I mean, so we speculate about is it going to be this way or that way, and is it going to be this? But in the end, it doesn't matter. But you know what? It might matter to you because I think it was Lena who said last week or two weeks ago, you might be in the intermediate heaven a lot longer than you've been on earth, especially if God keeps true with his word about I am patient so that none will perish. I mean, he might stretch it out another thousand years. All right? And you guys only been alive like 25 or 30, on some of you, not even that long. Okay? 
So there's a good chance that if you died, you're going to be hanging out in the intermediate heaven a lot longer than you're hanging out on earth. And you guys are all stressed out about what you're doing here. I just thought maybe some of you would be interested in knowing what you're going to do up there. It could be a device, but I will say this. Some people believe that, that in heaven there is no time. And I think that if you look at God's creation, including the fact that God created time, there's no reason to believe that heaven is outside of time. Heaven is a creation of God. Heaven is not an eternal realm, okay? All right, God is eternal. Everything else is probably within the timeline, right? Because God created time and we all live within it. And you know what's funny is this is one point that secular and Christians actually agree on, is that there must be something outside of time, and it's probably, in our parlance, it's God. Here are some other examples that I'd like to point out. Just real quickly. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. He had a body. He went to heaven. I always put an asterisk next to Jesus because we obviously know that he can do things we can't. But we know that Jesus is up there. He's depicted as standing at the right hand of God the Father. I doubt he's floating next to him. He's probably standing. He might have his body up there too. We know he had his body on earth. No reason to think he left it behind. How about the example of Enoch? You guys know who Enoch is, right? Guy who walked right into heaven. The Bible says his body was never found. Probably took it with him. Elijah and Moses. You guys remember those guys? Okay, first of all, how did Moses die? God buried Moses. His body wasn't found. We also know, how did Elijah go to heaven? Elijah gets to go up in the chariots of fire. Did he leave his body behind? Not that we know of. In fact, don't we get to see those two guys again? I mean, it's not like, this is the great thing. It's like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, they're in the sequel, you know what I mean? It's like you're, you're good, friendly characters from the Old Testament. Now you're in the New Testament. The sequel's supposed to be better than the original movie. And guess what? You have the characters from the old one showing up in the new one just to do a guest cameo. All right? And that's exactly what happens. Where is the guest cameo of Moses and Elijah in the sequel to that great one called the Old Testament? Where are they? The what? The transfiguration. I mean, they go up and Jesus is hanging out. Gets that spiritually glow around him, right? And all of a sudden, who appears on either side of him? Moses and Elijah, right? Now, how many times have you heard that talk given in a church, right? When was the last time you had the transfiguration talk given? Like, never. never. <laughs> Hang in with me for just a second. Here's some other examples. We know we just talked about the robes given to the martyrs. A lot of theologians put stock in that, that maybe that's a physical form issue. We know that Lazarus and the rich man are hanging out, and they seem to have physical forms in that parable. And finally... The one I cited to in Revelation 5, the elders seem to fall before the throne all the time. Imagine if that was your job. Like, I know that we're talking about what's going to be in heaven later, but imagine if your job was every time the gong went off, you would, like, fall down and worship. Like, be like uh, I'm building the new Jerusalem over here. You guys just call me if you need me. If, like, one of those guys gets tired, all right? I'll be just uh, hammering and nailing. But they seem to be referred to in every other instance in Revelation when there's people always seem to be referred to in a physical form. Now... It makes sense because it's a vision. It makes sense that it might be devices of the story. But I think what I've made tonight is just a case, especially in cases like Moses and Elijah and those people, they seem to have taken their bodies and gone into a different place. And when they came back in the sequel to do their guest cameo, they seem to be in the body that at least somebody recognized. So all I'm saying to you is maybe a case. Now, Monique asked a question about in the story about Lazarus and the rich man, it seems like 
there's a very clear principle that Jesus is telling us that you can't come back to warn somebody, okay? And yet, you guys know in, in society, we have a lot of discussions about, you know, that, you know, mediums being able to call up stuff. Now, three or four or five or nine or 12 weeks ago, I don't remember when, we were covering our series on witchcraft. We did talk specifically about the passage in the Bible where Saul, King Saul, being in the Old Testament, called up the spirit of Samuel through a medium, okay? Now, does that mean that that was actually Samuel? You know, the only thing I could say is it seems that it's Samuel because he speaks prophetic truth. And a demon usually probably wouldn't do that. I mean, he doesn't try to comfort Saul. In fact, he speaks words that can only come from God because they come true the next day. Now, maybe a demon could know what's going to happen in the future. Maybe it's a trick. But most people who read the passage agree that for whatever reason, that is legitimately Samuel's soul being brought back by a medium. How it's done, I don't know. We also know that there are times in the Bible where we have spiritual apparitions, for whatever lack of a better word you want to call, that are totally from God, like in the case of the transfiguration. Saul, in the Old Testament, for doing what he did, he basically got the worst news of his life. He paid with his life for doing what he did, okay? And then the last point is we definitely have experiences all around us that tell us that we know the devil's a liar. We know that his goal is to try to trick us. And as we covered at length during our talk on witchcraft, the, I believe and most people believe that all of this power is very real, but just comes from a very dark source. And that the devil's job is just not to let you know that. I think it's the same. You could say that almost with any supernatural event in the Bible. God doesn't walk around, for example, like even Jesus' ministry. He didn't walk around going like, healed, healed, healed. I mean, he always had a purpose. Whenever he healed somebody, it was almost like, let me ask you a question. What's easier for me to heal you or to forgive your sins, right? Because someone's watching, questioning his authority, right? So he'd do that. But there'd be like 20 guys lying around him. He didn't just go like, healed, you know? I mean, there was a, there was a purpose. And yes, I think that's exactly the point always, that there seems to be a purpose to it, you know? And that's one way to test the spirits, is understand, like, well, what is this? I mean, when somebody goes, like, I want to bring back the spirit of my father because I can't find the life insurance policy. I mean, I hear these things all the time. <laughs> Listen to angels in waiting every night when you go home from, like, Exodus. You can turn on, like, whatever station it's on, and there's a, yeah, it's like one of those stations, and they're, and the person's like, okay, I see a woman. Is it a woman, a girl? Is it a cat? Is it a dog? Maybe, maybe a parakeet. Oh, you had a parakeet. Yeah, I, I see that now. And some of, them are, some of them are very good, and some of them are faking it. But you know what? There are some that I've seen that seem to be dead on. And I think, look, you're just a, I mean, I'm sorry to tell you this. I could never probably say it to their face without them getting angry. But you have a strong power. But unfortunately, it comes from the devil, and you should be very scared about it. And of course, there's, no, 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 this is a helpful thing. It's a healing thing. It's a loving thing. It's an energy. It's an aura. It's like, you know what? The father of all lies has told you the biggest lie. And you are helping people miss this small portal to eternity, or at least to a good eternity, because you're leading people astray. But having said that, it doesn't mean that we can't find examples in Scripture that maybe we don't understand. Like, what is the purpose? Okay, let me summarize. First of all, like I said, you guys could put the big so what on tonight if you want to. The reason I covered it is because I think that we have an obligation to cover things that nobody ever covers. That's one thing I, I stick to. Second of all, I actually do think we're going to be in the intermediate heaven probably a lot longer than we might even be on earth, okay? 
I don't know that for sure. I'll, I'll admit that Jesus can come back at any minute. We'll never get to see the intermediate heaven. We'll skip right over it. But given the fact that we might die and given the fact that God is patient and he has been patient so far so that his word will spread to every corner of the world and given the fact that that's still going on, by the way, we might be hanging out out there. So I thought maybe you guys wanted to know that we'll be conscious, we'll be hanging out with Jesus, we'll be in a place that seems to be physical. There's probably some great things to do up there. We'll probably be conscious of what's going on in time and that the judgment's still coming. We might be spending a lot of time praying for people down here on earth or praying for God's ultimate victory or Satan's defeat or whatever it is. Okay? But I think it's going to be good for sure because it's just a precursor. But that's really the ultimate point. It's a precursor. It's temporary. If we have a body, it's temporary. If we're having a good time, it's temporary. It's going to get even better. Okay, go to the last slide, Alicia. This is what we're going to finally now get to talk about next week and in the next two weeks that we go forward. We're going to be talking about life on new earth. And that really is the goal of where this series has gone. It's taken us two or three or more weeks to bend our minds to get ready to talk about what's going to happen. Because if I had just started by saying, okay, life on new earth is going to be like this. We're going to be doing all these things and building cities and ruling and driving cars. You'd be like, wait a minute, that's not heaven. You know, heaven is that place where we just sit on the cloud. And now I think you could start to see as we go through these steps of leaving our life on earth, which is a life that's very physical in a lot of ways, that we go to another place that seems to have common attributes. And why wouldn't life on earth imitate life in heaven? We are made in his image. Okay? And now we're going to go even one step further to the best place, not another place in the sky, but right back here on earth, a renewed earth in renewed bodies, our own bodies, but remade, made better, resurrected, redeemed, made perfect the way the earth is going to be perfect again. And now, no sin, no sorrow, now the good stuff begins. And it isn't 24 hours of singing. <laughs> it isn't the nonstop worship channel. It is going to be a life that God's going to be like everything you ever imagined and more is going to take place. You guys are going to love what I've created for you. Just like it was originally planned. Are you tripping on the no marriage thing again? <laughs> you know what? We're going to have a whole talk on is there sex in heaven? Is there marriage in heaven? It's going to be, no, no, no. It's, believe me, it's, <laughs> all right, Monique is staking her entire reputation on there has to be sex in heaven. All right. Monique, Monique, will you at least show up to that talk? We're going we're gonna to deal with it straight on. Let's pray before all of us lose our minds, all right? And uh, let's, let's, let's dwell in holiness for just one more moment before we imagine where Monique's heaven is. <laughs> and Angela was so concerned that the people in heaven could watch her taking a shower. That's what she was concerned about. You're concerned about the guys. This is the part of the talk like where the women and the men go into separate rooms, you know, to finish the heaven talk, you know, because I don't think, I think you women are leading the men astray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I just pray that tonight we've honored you and what we've set aside. I know that a lot of what we've talked about tonight is debated. I know that we're drawing themes and clues from texts that sometimes does not appear that clear to us. And Lord, forgive us. We're just trying to peer into heaven and find out what it's like. Understand our destination, Lord. But Lord, thank you that it's not our ultimate destination. Thank you that it's going to be even better than that that you've prepared a life that's so amazing for us here on earth. Lord, tonight again, I just I ask that you open our eyes, 
Uh, open our hearts, open our minds. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that each person in here has been able to be somewhat flexible and understand things that maybe we've never studied before, we've never heard about before, and even now we might not even like the sound of them, Lord. But ultimately, you know what's best for us, and if we just put our trust in you, we know that these things are all going to work out beyond our wildest dreams. Through Paul's words, Lord, you commanded us to seek heaven. You told us to set our hearts and our minds on the things above, where you dwell, Jesus. And I pray that now that we're starting to glimpse into heaven, intermediate heaven, eternal heaven, it doesn't matter, Lord, because we know we're going to be with you, and that ultimately is what our whole desire should be. And Lord, the series that we've been doing has been so that we might learn to desire you better. And I know that in studying this, I'm beginning to get more excited about heaven. I'm beginning to become more excited about spending time with you. And Lord, that really is the ultimate goal of why we're studying. All this knowledge aside, Lord, just increase our love for you and increase our expectation and our hope for this great place that you've prepared for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you that you made it so simple that you gave this gift to us that you chose to do it of your own free will. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody in this room who's still unsure about what that gift is about or unsure that they've received the Lord, that we would talk about it, that we would stress it enough because nothing, Lord, in this life is worth gaining except for that ticket, Lord, to be with you forever in heaven. Pray these things in your name. Amen.